I'm in the book of Philemon. Philemon is the shortest of the Apostle Paul's letters, and uh, it's easy to miss if you're not careful and easy to overlook, as a lot of ministries do overlook it because they assume, uh, wrongfully so, that just because it's short must mean that it's not very significant, and I don't find that true at all. Uh, If you're not sure where it is, it's near the back of your Bible. Find the last book of the Bible, which is Revelation. Hang a left and come back just a little bit. It's between Paul's letter to Titus and the epistle to the Hebrews. One page probably in most of your Bibles this morning, and we'll be looking at a few verses from this briefest of all letters. Philemon, of course, is a book. If you boil it down to one word, you know what it's about? Reconciliation, which really is an important biblical concept. Uh, When you are saved, when you and I come into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says at that instant, at the instant that we surrender, the instant we submit to Jesus Christ, the instant we call on his name by faith to save us and to forgive us, the Bible says in that instant we are reconciled to God. It's one of the greatest of all biblical words, reconciled reconcile, reconciles, reconciliation. It's the process by which a hostile relationship is narrowed. It's the process, and of course, when you talk about reconciliation, the need for reconciliation, that of course assumes that there's a brokenness in the relationship, that there is a distance in the relationship. And reconciliation between us and God happens because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. The cross, as the old song says, is the great bridge that spans the great divide between a lost humanity and a holy God. So we all need to be reconciled to God. But having said that, reconciliation is also very important on a human level. For those of us that have received freely the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God now have a responsibility to extend that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness to others. As we have been reconciled to God, we are as followers of the Lord to seek to be reconciled to others. And really when we talk about reconciliation, it's really the act by which enemies become friends. It's often been said that the best way to get rid of an enemy is to make him your friend. I love the story that comes from the revolutionary period of the United States, 1775, to be specific, regarding the Baptist minister who lived in a Frata, Pennsylvania, whose name was Peter Miller. Peter Miller ministered in the local Baptist church there, and during the Revolutionary War period, he was a close personal friend of General George Washington. I don't know, I think it'd be good to throw around that you were tight with George. And Peter Miller could, they were good friends. And uh, during that same period of time, there was in the same town of Ephrata, Pennsylvania, a man named Michael Whitman, who was an evil-minded man. He was a deacon in the local German Reformed Church who also owned a tavern. Now, that's a good church-going deacon, right? Deacon on Sunday, tavern owner the rest of the week. Somebody say amen. But he was. And he hated Pastor Peter Miller. 
And the reason that he hated him and held a grudge against him is because Miller at one time had been a German reformed himself. But he left the German reformed church over theological differences and became a Baptist minister in the same town and Michael Whitman never forgave him for it. So much so that they lived in that small town, not a big city, but a very small town, in open hostility with one another. Peter Whitman was known to have literally multiple times spit in Pastor Miller's face as they passed on the street. He was known to brush up against him shoulder to shoulder in a very brusque and offensive kind of way, trying to knock him off his equilibrium. One occasion they were walking down the street and with no warning whatsoever, Mr. Whitman doubled up his fist and threw a haymaker punching Pastor Miller literally in the side of the head for no reason, knocking him to the ground. What's interesting about that is that over time, his bitterness expressed himself in, in treachery. As he began to work with the British, he became a traitor to the colonial cause of freedom. And of all people, he was sold out by his wife who had loved him at one time, but had learned not to like him very much and despised what he was doing in the land in which he lived. And so she turned state's evidence against him. He was arrested, moved to Valley Forge where Washington was encamped, placed on a military trial, found guilty of treason, and sentenced to death. Word, of course, quickly got back to the little cloister at Ephrata. And Pastor, Meter, uh, Pastor Miller heard of his plight. And that very evening, he set out on foot, walking the 50 miles between Ephrata and Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, in order to plea for the man's life. When he got there, he requested an audience with General Washington. Washington, of course, knew him, found out he was there, immediately agreed to see him. And Peter Miller came in and began to make his case. Washington listened attentively, but then cut him off and said, Peter, I understand what you're trying to do, but I'm sorry, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. And Pastor Miller put up his hand and said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. He's not my friend. In fact, he's the bitterest enemy I have in the world. He's offended me more times, done me more harm than any other man in town, but I don't think that he needs to die and as a gospel minister who preaches mercy and grace and forgiveness, I ask you to consider that in light of your own faith and release him to my recognizance. Trust me with him. And the story is told that Washington was moved to tears over that, so much so that he granted a pardon to Mr. Whitman, releasing him to the care of Pastor Miller and when it was all said and done, those two men walked side by side together 50 miles back to their hometown, no longer enemies, but friends. In this very brief letter to Philemon, you see a bit of that same dynamic going on with the Apostle Paul standing in much the same way between two men, pleading for them to be reconciled. And life and death is on the line. Let's pick up our reading this morning 
in verse number eight of this little letter, one chapter letter to Philemon. Philemon and the eighth verse. Everybody with me say amen. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to me and to you. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. This is the living, breathing, eternal word of the living God, and let all God's people who agree say amen. Now, what you need to remember, in case you weren't here last week, is that Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest in Rome. It would be a very productive exile for him because he would be a writing machine while he's in that house arrest. He would write the biblical letters to the Philippians, which is in your New Testament. He would write the biblical letter to Colossians, which is in your New Testament. He would also write the monumental and significant letter to the Ephesians, which was actually a circular letter that went to more places than simply the church at Ephesus. It was one of the most influential letters ever written by Paul. All of that written during this same Roman imprisonment. And while he's there, he takes time to write a personal letter to a man named Philemon, to whom we were introduced last week. Philemon was not a prisoner of the Lord like Paul. He was a wealthy merchant, a wealthy businessman who lived in the city of Colossa, and he had become an important church leader. Paul met him originally, I think, in Ephesus. When Paul was ministering the gospel as a church planter in Ephesus, he lived there about three years, and probably Philemon came there on business, encountered the preaching of the apostle Paul, and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And so it was through the ministry of Paul that this man, this wealthy man, this land-owning man, this slave-owning man came to faith in Jesus Christ. So he owed Paul a lot, and you can sense that as you read this letter to Philemon. He's become a church leader, Philemon has, a part of the church meets in his house. And so he is there providing leadership, worship services, the reading of Scripture, prayer, discipleship, all of that's taking place under his roof. And Paul writes to him, of course, from this condition of imprisonment about a person they have in common. The letter fundamentally has to do with a runaway slave who's managed to find his way not only to Paul, but by finding his way to Paul, he managed to find his way to Jesus Christ. He left having stolen some money from Philemon, and he made this incredible journey from Colossae to Rome where Paul was. We don't know if he knew Paul at all before he gets to Rome, and we don't know if he knew Paul. We don't know if he knew Paul was in Rome in prison. So we have to do some reading between the lines. But one way or another, he finds his way to Paul, and I'm just here to tell you this morning, I don't think that was an accidental encounter. I think he was led there by the Holy Spirit. He obviously went to Rome because he was a fugitive 
on the run from the law, on the run from his owner, and so he goes to the largest city he can find, which was the largest city on planet Earth at the time where he could easily meld into the population and just get lost because bounty hunters were everywhere, and that's how they made their living, by finding runaway slaves, runaway criminals, escapees of all kinds, and then turning them in for ransom. We're introduced to him, this fugitive slave, here in verse 10, when Paul says, I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And then in verse 12, he tells us what he's going to do. I am sending him back to you. Now, that was, of course, a very risky thing for Paul to do. It was risky for Onesimus because he ran the risk of being captured. And it was risky for Paul. Onesimus was obviously a fugitive who had broken the law by running away from his master without leave, without permission. He was a wall. And Paul was in violation of the law because for a period of time, the length of which we don't know, he was harboring a fugitive, which was also against the law. So if he is found out on the journey back, both of these men could be in trouble. Paul in more trouble than he already was for preaching the gospel. And yet, in the face of all that risk, sending him back is exactly what Paul does. And there's a reason for that. You know why Paul sent him back? The reason he does it is because it's an incredible opportunity for Philemon to demonstrate something about kingdom relationships which had the potential to impact the church in his house and still has the potential to impact the church of the Lord Jesus Christ over 2,000 years later. And you know what that something was? That something of an opportunity is simply this, that in the face of broken relationships, and we all have them over the journey of our life, in the face of broken relationships, the one who has been reconciled to God through the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ is obligated to pursue reconciliation with others by extending that same grace and forgiveness to them. That's what Paul wants us to learn. If we have received the lavish mercy and grace of God in the face of our sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross, let there be no doubt that we are under obligation to extend that same grace and mercy and spirit of forgiveness to others. So Paul sends the slave back so that two Christian brothers could show the church there and the world as we know it what life in the kingdom is, what living the gospel is really supposed to look like. Now, don't you imagine that when Paul calls Onesimus into his cell and says, here's the deal, brother, we've had a great time, you served me well, but it's time for you to go back, that he got a little knot in his stomach. Somebody say amen. You know? Because that's not probably what he wanted to hear. He probably had a great gig going on, serving Paul, ministering with the church there in Rome, and so he knew, man, if things don't go out, if I manage to make it from Rome back to Colossa, that's miracle number one. If I manage to make it without getting caught, and if, if I manage to make it without getting caught, I have no idea what's going to become of me the minute I set foot back under that man's roof. He had no assurance that he would last through the sunset of the day he walked back into that man's house. 
Because Philemon had the law on his side. And he could literally do with him whatever he wanted to do, including take the man's life. But he goes. Because now he learned something from the Apostle Paul. He understood now that because he's been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, seeking the forgiveness of Philemon was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. Seeking forgiveness in a broken relationship is always the right thing to do, even though it's a hard thing to do. It's a risky thing to do. And let me just say this morning, can I remind you, following Jesus means that he'll sometimes command you to do hard things. It's not altogether easy to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it can be very costly. Now, the question is raised, in light of the social institution of slavery and all that's going on here, the question is inevitably raised, why in the world would Paul send the man back into that? I mean, he's obviously there with Paul. They're obviously doing good together. Why, why should he seek forgiveness from somebody who's clearly out of bounds and owning the man as his own property in the first place? Well, it might be good to just hit the pause button for a second and talk about the institution of slavery, particularly as it impacted the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament. Let me just begin by saying this morning, slavery is evil, it's revolting, it is not of God, and we resist it with all of our heart. And it, it's something that God would have nothing of, even though it's obviously a political institution in the first century of the Greco-Roman world and had been for centuries. It's revolting. And we're students of American history now, and we know that it's had a important role to play in the shaping of our country in the United States. Some of you are sitting here today closer to the issue that I or anybody else are and that you are descendants of African slaves. But let me just make a statement here this morning. If all of us could trace our ancestry back far enough, like 2,000 years back, probably most of us in the room here today is Gentiles are likely, unless you're of the nobility, are likely descendants of slaves. It's estimated that somewhere around 40% of the Roman Empire of the first century across the board were slaves. It was an ingrained part of the Roman culture, all of the then known world. And unlike our experience, we tend to think of race in the 200 plus year history of the United States, we think of race as a racial thing. It was not a racial thing in the first century. Slavery was no respecter of race. You could be any race, red, yellow, black, white, Jew, Gentile. My stars, the Jews, the very people of God were in Egyptian slavery for over 400 years of their history. So it was a, no respecter of persons, no respecter of race. Most of the people who were populated as slaves in the first century were prisoners of war. Rome was a mighty force, and they would conquer lands, and what they would do as they came back, well, they'd come carting back all of these prisoners of war. And most of them would be sold into slavery. So many of them were captured in war, maybe even the majority of them during that period. Many of them were criminals, uh, and so they couldn't function in society. They'd be sold into slavery. Others became slavery of their own accord, all you had to do to become a slave in the first century was just have your business fail. 
go into catastrophic debt, have no means of paying it. And you had two choices. You either go to a debtor's prison from which you would never escape, or you could sell yourself into bondage. Those were called bond servants, douloi, bond slaves. Sometimes we refer to them as indentured servants. And many of those were taken into the home, many of them grew, many of them were very skilled. It's not uncommon to find accountants as slaves in the first century, not uncommon to find household stewards running the farm, running the house, people who had lots of skills. Not uncommon to find an occasional physician who's in slavery. Many of them were paid, many of them made wages, they were given spending money, many of them were considered part of the family. But all things being equal, it's still one human being owning another human being for the purpose of economic profit, and it is wrong, 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 no matter how you slice and dice it. So when it comes to slavery, my point is simply this, there's a difference in kind to what we're accustomed to typically in our country, but it's still slavery. And apparently Onesimus was one of those slaves who didn't feel the love And so he decides he wants out, helping himself to some of Philemon's fortune in the process. And when it comes to Paul, again, the question is raised, with all of that as the backdrop, why would Paul send him back? I mean, why doesn't he just write Philemon a letter and say, here's the deal, man, he's left, I know he left, you know he left, but man, I tell you, Christ got a hold of his life. He's been here with me for these past many weeks and months. He's serving me as a deacon would serve a pastor. I'm using him as a scribe. I'm using him to do some teaching. I mean, the guy's growing like wildfire in his understanding of the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to do. As a friend of mine, you owe me a favor. You owe me your eternal life. Set the man free. Emancipate him. Let him stay here with me. Why doesn't he do that? Because he doesn't. And there's an answer. I mean, Paul had obviously become very attached to the guy. He describes him here as my child. And then later he describes him as my, not only my brother, he describes him as what kind of brother? My beloved brother. He's endeared to me. And then Paul describes him in the most connective kind of way as my very heart. Literally, the word is not heart, it's bowels. And that's the way Greeks describe the deepest emotion. It's not quite as warm and fuzzy, is it? He's my very intestinal tract. Somebody say Amen. But, but for the Greek, man, the, the, the seed of the emotions went far deeper than the heart. The heart was the whole person, but the seed of the emotions, I mean, we put hearts on Valentine's Day cards, they would have put a liver on a Valentine's Day card. Real romantics, the Greeks were. But that was the deepest part of their affection for another person. He's become my very bowel, my very heart in our lingo. And he's clearly become useful. Did you see that phrase? He was at one time useless to you. Probably a renegade, disobedient. Now he's a thief. He's taking some of your money. But he's become useful, which is what the name Onesimus means, useful. His name was a joke before. Now it's become reality. Paul says he's become useful to me. And I have a feeling now with the change in relationship, since you know the same Lord, He's going to become useful to you, too. 
So that being the case, I mean, why not just ask to keep him? Why don't the New Testament writers in general, in fact, let's just, let's just let it all hang out this morning. Why doesn't Peter and Luke and John and Paul and the rest of them decry the evil institution of slavery and say this is not right for one human to profit by owning another person. Let's overthrow it in the name of the Lord. Why don't they do that? You know why? Because it would have been a disaster. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, Christianity was about that big. Just about that big. And many of them are already getting thrown in jail and all they're doing is preaching the gospel. They're not rioting in the streets. They're not encouraging the overthrow of Nero. They're not encouraging uh, a, a complete replacement of the social political order. They're not doing any of that. They're just preaching Jesus and the resurrection from the dead and they're getting thrown in jail and burned at the stake and thrown to the Colosseum and everything else. Imagine if they go out and start trying to completely overturn the economic engine of the first century. How do you think that's going to go over? In fact, how many times do you see Paul encouraging anything but submission to the governing authorities? How many times do you see Paul in the New Testament or Peter in the New Testament or any other gospel writer? How many of them do you see fomenting political riots or political rebellion or political revolution? How about never? How about Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities? Nero is crazy and he's on the throne. The writer to the Hebrews does the same thing. Don't bail out. I know things are hot. Peter will say, fear God and honor the king. Honor the Roman emperor? He's a thoroughgoing pagan who wants us all to die. Honor the king. God will honor you if you honor the authority structures he's put into place. And this is why when Paul addresses slavery like he does, in Ephesians 6, he addresses how slaves and masters are to relate to one another in a new gospel order, but never one time does he say it ought to be thrown out. And there's an important reason, I think, for that. The early church writers, they don't focus on changing political. Listen, they don't, they don't wax about politics in the Bible. We love to talk about politics more than we like to talk about the gospel sometimes, truth be told. Because I read social media, I read y'all social media. And in the South, we like to talk about politics, right? But you don't see the gospel writers talking about politics. They don't focus on changing institutions. They focus on preaching the gospel with a view toward changing human hearts. Let's preach the gospel. Let's change human souls and human hearts one life at a time, at a time, at a time. Let's develop this house church movement. You know what they focused on? They didn't focus on overthrowing political structures. They focused on growing the kingdom of Christ within political structures. And over time, it's like Jesus taught about that mustard seed. Jesus compared the gospel to a mustard seed. So tiny you almost need a magnifying glass. But then he says, you bury it into the ground and it begins to sprout and then it grows and then eventually over time, what happens? It becomes the biggest tree in the garden. The most forceful and prominent plant there and so large that birds come and build their nests. And that's exactly what happened. Christianity grew one life at a time and one church at a time and one house movement at a time. And it began to wield its influence and it was during the American Civil War period the abolitionists fundamentally came out of the church and began to say, this is not right. 
and the walls came tumbling down. Eventually, not all at once, but eventually. So the gospel is not so much about tearing down political social institutions, it's about building the kingdom, and as the kingdom is built, influence rises. And we can see, and always remember, this is not, we want the world to be heaven. This is not heaven. You're not living in heaven. This is the world. It's broken. It's still broken. You do know slavery still exists today. It's estimated by the United Nations and NGOs, some 40,000, maybe more than 50,000 people around the world are slaves, mostly in Southeast Asia, In sub-Saharan Africa, irony of ironies. Slavery is rampant. Most of it's related to the sex traffic trade. So it's terrible. But the gospel writers focused on the kingdom. And that's what we ought to focus on. Speaking of social media, listen, there are times when our gospel does impact politics and times when we need to speak out. I'm not saying never speak out against uh, political uh, era or political um, malfeasance or political issues that are impacted by the gospel. There's a time to do that. But how about this? Because sometimes that's all we talk about. How about this? For every one political post you make, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, how about doing two about the effects of the gospel in your life? I double dog dare you. I will not make one political comment without making two gospel comments. And you have to be careful how you do that because you can't go out there and say those rotten, stinking, dirty liberal Democrats and then turn around the next day and say, oh, Jesus is Lord and his love has changed my life. No, you better be careful. But then as now, we need to be more about talking up the gospel than anything else. Because you ain't going to change anybody's mind politically anyway. They're, they're, they're dug in, man. We can talk about that all day long. What we need to be trying to do is to break down the barriers and the strongholds that keep people from the knowledge of God. And that's what Paul talked about here in the gospel. To Philemon. This is a letter ultimately about reconciliation. And that lies at the heart of all gospel-centered relationships. Reconciliation is at the heart of your marriage. Reconciliation lies at the heart of your relationship with your kids, at the heart of your relationship with your parents, at the heart of your relationship with your friends, at the heart of your relationship with your coworkers. You are, the Bible says, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a minister of reconciliation. That's what lies at the heart of all gospel-centered relationships because the business of reconciliation and forgiveness, this concept of learning to live together in unity, is always a matter of the heart. It can't be forced. It can't be coerced. Only Christ can plant it within your heart. And that's the primary reason that Paul does not identify himself as an apostle in this letter. He doesn't write to Philemon and say, let me tell you what, big boy, I spent three years in the desert with Jesus Christ personally in an out-of-body experience. He trained me. I've seen him alive and well. I know he's coming back again, and you're in the wrong, and you need to do what's right, and you need to listen to me, or I'm coming with a whip in my hand. He doesn't do that. Instead, he appeals to Philemon's heart as a brother in Christ, 
He identifies himself at the beginning of the letter, not like he does in every one of his other letters. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. How does he start Philemon? I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. Paul places himself in solidarity with the slave. He's in chains and I'm in chains. And Philemon, you need never forget it. In your villa, overlooking the lake. Now let me tell you what I'm going to do. I could command you to do this. I could come to you as an apostle. But Paul's motive is clear. Verse 14. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Isn't that beautiful? See, he doesn't want Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus, the runaway slave, because he's forced to. He wants him to reconcile because he gets to. He wants him to reconcile because he wants to, because that's the most Christ-honoring, God-honoring response that he can make as a new brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants him to see Onesimus not for who he used to be as a slave, but now he wants him to see him for what he has become, transformed by the same Christ that transformed the master's life. And I'm telling you in the whole letter of the Philemon, verses 15 and 16, are absolutely critical. We didn't read them when we read the text a moment ago, but we surely need to read them now. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a little while. In other words, this is Paul's way of saying, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I don't believe any of this was a mistake. I don't believe any of this is accidental. I don't believe he found me by happenstance. I believe that God is in the midst of all of this to accomplish something phenomenal that will spur the growth of the church that meets in the house of Philemon and by extension all over the then known world and even into the 21st century that we live in today. This is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer, circle that phrase, no longer in your notes. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As not just a brother, what kind of brother? Say it out loud, as a beloved Brother, it's beautiful, man. Paul is standing between these two men. He's got one of them by the lapel on this side. He's got the other by the lapel on this side. They couldn't be any more different. They couldn't have come from any greater background. And he's standing right there as a bridge between them in the shape of a cross, pleading with them as you have been reconciled to God. Cross the bridge. And let the cross heal you. And for God's sake and for the sake of the kingdom, welcome the man back. No longer as a slave, but better. As a beloved brother in Christ. That's the message. You've been reconciled to God. Now be reconciled. To one another. You know, when you meet the Lord, everything changes in your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the last half of 2 Corinthians 5, all about reconciliation. If any man be in Christ, reconciled to God, he is a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. 
This is a subtle hint to Philemon. You're a new creation in Christ. Now it's time to act like it. I want you to do it because you get to, because you're led by the Spirit, not because I compelled you to do it. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So I'm going to send it back. No longer as a slave, but a brother. I love the phrase, no longer. Man, alive. That's one of the great biblical phrases. Because all of us at one time, here's the deal. Are y'all still with me? Say amen. I got to quit. I'm running out of time, and I regret it. Before you met Jesus Christ, can I say everybody in the house was a slave? Jesus said in John chapter 8, whoever sins is a slave of sin. The doula, the bondservant of sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned, the Bible says, to his own way. But then we meet the Lord. And no longer... Before the Lord, aliens and strangers. But in Christ, no longer are we aliens and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Before we met the Lord, orphans without a family. But ever since we met the Lord, no longer are we orphans without a family but children of God adopted into his family, made to sit together with Christ in the heavenly places at what Jesus called a banquet table, never again to be asked to leave it. And before we met the Lord, every one of us were slaves, but no longer are we slaves, but sons part of an eternal family in which we have a heavenly father and myriads of brothers and sisters, all of whom we have a responsibility to. And that's why for a believer who's been reconciled to God, being reconciled to others is not an option. It's a divine responsibility. God has saved us, and with salvation comes what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 5, the ministry of reconciliation. And failure to do that, failing to pursue reconciliation in the broken relationships of your life, can cause a great jeopardy in your relationship to God. You won't lose your relationship to God, but you sure can lose the fellowship of, of uh, the fellowship you enjoy with God. You can lose the joy. You can lose your song. Your prayer life can come to a standstill. You'll go into a season of dryness. You cannot live in disobedience and have a fruitful life walking with the Lord. Not only does it jeopardize your fellowship with God, but it absolutely compromises your witness to the world. And this is why there's so much in the Bible. We'll talk more about this next week. But there's so much in the Bible about that. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, and he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, 
Now they come into the house of God to worship and you bring a sacrificial offering. And in the process of worshiping by offering the sacrifice, you remember that your brother has something against you. What does Jesus say to do? I leave the worship service. Go, get out. Leave your offering there. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. First, reconciliation. Because your failure to recognize the brokenness in your relationship and do what you can do in order to restore it has caused a breach in your fellowship with God. Therefore, don't offer it because it'll be meaningless to God. Leave it. First go be reconciled to your brother, then come back and watch God restore the joy of your salvation and receive your offering to him. You know, the truth is there's a little bit of Philemon and a little bit of Onesimus in all of us. All of us have done wrong. We're all slave to sin. Yet God has lavished his mercy. God pursued us as he pursued Onesimus. God has pursued us to salvation. He's lavished his grace on us. He's welcomed us into his family just like he did for both of these men. And you know what that makes us? That makes us a community of equals. Isn't it beautiful? Now, those two guys are different as they can be. But in the kingdom of Christ, there was no distinction between the two. You see that? The ground, as the old preacher used to say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're nothing more. We're all different as night and day in here. But in the kingdom of God, we're exactly alike. We are a community of equals as we stand together in the shadow of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ And the Bible says that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In Christ, we are all one, unified by the word of the gospel, a gospel that's transformed us and made all things new. Now we're to live it. And live it we must. One in Christ, so act like it. Live the gospel. It may be uncomfortable, it may be risky, but the charge is clear and the world is watching. Love as you have been loved. Welcome as you have been welcomed. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the word of God. And let all God's people agree by saying, and amen.